Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. We're starting out our next message in this series, Growing Young. I'm going to pray before we get started, if we could do that. So God, would you give your miraculous into these words that are shared today. Lord, even as you spoke through Balaam's ass, God, speak through this stubborn ox today. That, Lord, your word would accomplish what it's been sent out to do. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So for our topic today, again in this series of Growing Young, we're going to be looking at a close-up of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, Jesus is always an interesting study uh, when you consider the obvious things about him, which is his teachings and his miraculous works. But today, we're going to highlight something a little more deep than that. We're going to try to glean something from the thoughts, even the very feelings of Jesus himself. And it's not so obvious when you read the scriptures what were Jesus' feelings. And if you read too quickly, you're going to miss these brief glimpses that are in the gospel writer's stories about Jesus. And the deeper question that we're going to answer today is this one. What were the habits of Jesus that formed his thoughts and his feelings, his emotions? What were the things that he did that informed that? And finally, we want to make this most important proposal to you guys today. Hang on. We can learn from Jesus' example so that we too might develop right thoughts, right feelings. And that's the essential part of our discipleship in him. In other words, if we learn some of the habits of Jesus, we'll become emotionally healthy disciples of Jesus and thus fulfill his calling on our lives. Now, trust me, this will make more sense as we go along, but I just gave you guys a big mouthful of what we're going to be talking about today. Well, in the late 1900s, a popular book was published by somebody by the name of Charles Sheldon, and the book was called In His Steps, but it had a subtitle on it. The subtitle of the book was What Would Jesus Do? Now, Sheldon published that a novel, which was in novel format, to support a series of sermons he was preaching, and they were all about his version at the time of something called Christian socialism. And that is to say that somehow by following the example of Jesus, we can produce a change in society. That's the mindset of him. Well, that same phrase, what would Jesus do, had been preached earlier in that decade by a famous preacher called Charles Spurgeon. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, right? He actually had preached on it. But now listen, you, may not, you might know about Spurgeon. He was no theological lightweight. And he certainly did not believe in uh, the gospel for just the sake of social change. But he really believed in the gospel. And he asked that same question, what would Jesus do? He gave a solid gospel message. So Spurgeon based his sermons, actually, on the teachings of, a Lat, of Latin writings of a monk named Thomas Akempis from the 1400s. For one thing, who could read Latin? 
goes all the way back to the 1400s. And he entitled that book from the 1400s was called The Imitation of Christ. How many of you have read The Imitation of Christ? Okay, two of us. (laughs) I'm sorry, maybe there are three. All right. The point about this is the same idea of following after the example of Jesus. Okay, fast forward. In the 1990s, somebody grabbed onto this idea of what would Jesus do, and they repackaged it with the letters WWJD, and they put it on bracelets, they put it on everything, they put it on motorcycle uh, gas tank caps. Okay, what would Jesus do? And the idea was spreading this idea all over the place so we would all do the right thing, at least in the area of good works, okay? Again, it was an attempting to do a kind of re-engineering socially if we would just follow that example of Jesus. Unfortunately, this emphasis was devoid of any of the miraculous works that Jesus did. And those of us who emphasized these things when we experienced those miraculous works in the charismatic renewal were like, but what about the other things Jesus did? Doing good works, perhaps, Maybe even the miraculous works is very exciting. But listen, it leaves those who are following Christ with a deficiency in the development of their spiritual character. Do you understand that? There's the exciting things on the outside, but then there's important things we must have to do in our inside. We must give attention to our inside development as in following the character of Christ. So in the 1970s, there was a groundbreaking book that was written to address the spiritual formation of Christ-like character in every disciple. And at that time, the author, Richard Foster, he had found almost no writings over the last hundred years on these topics of the inner life. In fact, uh, he was mostly focusing on fasting and found nothing written about fasting. For almost 100 years, nobody was writing about this. So he felt this deficiency, and he said, well, I'm going to remedy this, and he wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. How many of you have read that book's Celebration of Discipline? Okay, there's a few more of us. We're getting better here. Okay, that's good. But in the past 40 years, these habits have been referred to as something called spiritual disciplines. I have to be careful about those words, spiritual disciplines, because so many Christians go, ah, discipline, I'm not a very disciplined person, and they reject it. But it's called disciplines because it only develops in us through intentional efforts on our part. They're spiritual because they develop in an area inside of us you can't see with our physical bodies, with our physical abilities, or even with our, in our muscles. You can't see that development in us spiritually. Spiritual because it addresses our relationship with God. It addresses the inner man. It addresses our spirits and our faith, the things you can't see. That's what those disciplines address. But it's somewhat analogous to the physical disciplines of an Olympic athlete. And if some of you might know the lifestyle and the disciplines in the life of an athlete, especially some of the Olympic athletes we just watched just a few weeks ago. Paul wrote to Timothy this phrase. He said, physical exercise is really of limited value. And he wrote it this way. For while bodily training is of some value, Paul writes to Timothy, that godliness is of value in every way. 
It holds promise for the present life and also for our life to come, believe it or not. That's interesting. In other words, there are eternal consequences to the training in godliness. So before we totally reject this whole phrase, WWJD, I'd like to ask this question. What were the habits or the practices of Jesus that shaped his values, his feelings? And ultimately, they empowered him to accomplish his mission. What were those habits? Of course, some people say, you're using the word habits to talk about Jesus. Isn't that kind of inappropriate? Habits have such a negative connotation. Listen, there are a few things that you need to know about human beings and having habits. Habits can be good. Habits can be extremely beneficial. Someone said this, approximately 90% of what we do every day is governed by the habits in our lives. In other words, we almost run on autopilot for 90% of the things we do throughout the day. That's an interesting thought. And someone else said this, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. Ooh, that's an interesting thought. So here's some encouragement about adopting good habits. A study has shown that if you do the same thing every day for 28 consecutive days, it will become a habit. Bad or good, it will become a habit. So regarding Jesus' habit, habits, we don't have a complete record of everything Jesus did. I wish we did, but God saw to it that we didn't have a complete record. But there's some things we can still learn about Jesus' habits by reading the Gospels. We have to sort through the parts that are about teachings and his works. In fact, Apostle John said this, you know, there's many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, oh, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. But some of Jesus' habits were a necessary part of what governed his feelings. And these habits enabled Jesus to fulfill his, his mission. But perhaps you've heard somebody say this before. Well, Jesus was God. So how could I be expected to imitate what Jesus did? Or they ask this, why did Jesus need to develop good spiritual habits? Wasn't he sinless? Well, Jesus is a specimen of what I call the God-man type. Unlike any other, there is none like him before and will be none like him ever again. This idea of a God-man. The blending of his humanity with his divinity. And it really is still today, to many theologians, it's a mystery. We can't fully comprehend it. On one hand, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. He says that. But on the other hand, we know things like this. Jesus said, these things the Father knows, but I don't know. Really, Jesus? How could you not know something that the Father knows? Or this one. In Gethsemane, he says this. But it's not my will, but your will be done. What? How could Jesus' will not be the same as the Father's will? Is that possible? These are the mysteries of Jesus' humanity blended with his divinity. And yet the writer in Hebrews says, in every respect, 
He'd been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the nature of this Jesus, this God-man. And then it says this in Hebrews, which is interesting. It says he learned obedience. How could Jesus learn anything? Doesn't he know everything already? But yet it says he learned obedience. Well, listen, I'm encouraged by this part, knowing how human he was, because it's an essential thing for me to be able to say, he modeled for me some things that I'm to follow. He modeled habits and practices that were part of his humanity. And then I, as a disciple of Jesus, can look to those habits, can look to the scriptures where I can find them, and say, I'm going to try to live like that. But of course, in this particular thing, modeling after Jesus' feelings, that's a little bit tricky. You see, emotions in general have not been always valued by Christianity. In fact, some of the Jews said, we don't want to think about our God as an emotional God because all of the Greek gods were very whimsical. They were gods with great amounts of emotion, but they seemed to be completely uncontrolled in their gods. And so they were reluctant to say, yeah, our God's emotional like that too. Okay, so they wouldn't accept or they didn't emphasize the emotions of their God. So that's the framework I just laid out for you. So let's get into the meat of the full picture here. So my title today I've selected for this is WWJF, What Would Jesus Feel? And we're going to take this out of Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 to 30. I've heard um, somebody share with me just today the number of times they heard this scripture mentioned in just the last couple days leading up to this message today was very confirming. I said, thank you very much. So let me give some background to this passage. If I could possibly give it context, although you're going to find out it's not so easy to do so always. As you know, the Gospels are collections of teachings and stories, and the Gospel writers attempted to put them in an orderly way for us. Luke even said that, look, I took testimonies from people, eyewitness stories, and I put them together into this Gospel here. But in doing so, they had to make some choices. Order, for example. Not all of the Gospels have the same stories. Not all of the Gospels have exactly the same quotes of Jesus. So this is Matthew's rendition of that. And if you go into my Bible, as some of your Bibles might have, the heading of the paragraph at verse 25 says something like this, come to me. Or maybe your Bible says, come to me, I will give you rest. It might say that. Those outline notes there are not part of the scriptures. It is the writers of the Bible here, the translators maybe, who put in paragraphs even to say this is a separate thought. So we're beginning out this separate thought a little bit differently here by starting at verse 25. So I'm going to read it with you together. I will try not to make too much commentary. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared. At what time? It's very confusing. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Did you notice Jesus changed this from being a prayer to a declaration 
of who he is. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So the interesting part about this whole segment I've just read to you is that it includes in there an opening is a prayer to God the Father that Jesus is talking about here, where he's talking about, Lord, you have hidden these things. What are those things? Is it the things that follow, or is it things that come previous? And if you read the previous segment, you're going to go, ah, I don't think that's the things he's talking about. So what are the things that he was talking about? And in this scripture segment, there's a few other things. When you how many of you have had red-letter Bibles? You know what a red-letter Bible is? All the quotes of Jesus are in red. And in a red-letter Bible, I always ask this question, to whom was this phrase written? To whom was Jesus speaking when he declared that? The context is important sometimes. It really is. So in this context, I ask this question, to whom was Jesus speaking? Well, the Bible actually doesn't say. We can't really be certain, put it that way. We can't be dogmatic. But it was clearly spoken for people who were laboring hard and were carrying a heavy burden. Perhaps it was the Jews that were trying to fulfill the law, but not being successful at it. Maybe in this whole passage here, the most shocking portion of his invitation that he says here is, I will give his rest, is fully messianic. Because note this, he said, I will give you rest. He doesn't say Yahweh or the Father will give you rest, did he? No, he said, I will give you rest. Very messianic. And then he repeats, learn from me. You, Jesus? Yes, learn from me, and then you will find rest for your souls. This is very powerfully powerful words. So I believe in this. I believe there is a plenary is the word, a fuller understanding of these words that Jesus spoke. I believe that Jesus knew how these sayings would affect the people who heard it. Listen, I believe that Jesus knew that even up to this moment that we are hearing them today, that they would affect you and me. I honestly believe that. I believe these words were given in such a way that he knew we would be the audience receiving this word amongst many others. And then the invitation, take my yoke, learn from me. Now, how many of you people have seen this series in TV or it's on a video called The Chosen? Yeah. Right? Great series. It is art. And art has interpretation to it. So all of you biblical scholars there will say, it's not precise to the Bible. It's art, okay? So when Rembrandt paints a painting, he uses colors that he imagines for the scene. And then I say, 
Well, nice Rembrandt, but that's not the way I remember the story. It doesn't matter. It's art, okay? The chosen is art. It's an artful retelling of the gospel stories about Jesus. And there's one scene in there. I love it so much. Matthew is a bit of a ADHD uh, type of disciple, and he writes everything down, okay? And so at one point, Jesus says something very significant. He says, Matthew, write this down. And I'm thinking, of course, he's expecting Matthew's going to write the gospel. It's a little interesting interpretation there. And that is Matthew knew very well how important these things were because Jesus said, Matthew, write this down. Okay. So I would like to ask this question today or make this proposal today. I want to learn from Jesus. I want to ask him, Lord, what were the things that you did that made you feel the way you felt? What habits, Lord, did you develop in your life that made you so very emotionally healthy? What made you like that, Jesus? Hence, in this message title, I'm asking this question, what would Jesus feel? How did he handle his emotions? I'm convinced of a number of things about Jesus and his emotions. I'll share those with you quickly if I can. I do believe Jesus was quite emotional. I don't think he was out of control emotional, as some people think I am, okay? But I believe he was emotional. So here's a sampling, just little glimpses that you can catch between passages of scriptures. I'm going to read them quickly. You'll know where the references are, but I'm not going to give them to you. We don't have the time. How about this line? And Jesus felt compassion. What? Jesus felt compassion? That phrase happens like six or seven times in Scripture. He had compassion for a leper. He had compassion for the widow of Nain who just lost her son. For the two blind men. He had compassion for the crowds who were hungry for bread and fish. And when he entered Jerusalem, when he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them, it says in the Scriptures. How about this one? To the rich young ruler, it says this, and Jesus felt love for him. He felt the emotion of love. It says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We learn from the book of Hebrews. He was full of joy when the 70 disciples came back after their mission and tell their great stories. He was full of joy as well. But now there's some darker emotions of Jesus. He was prophesied by the Old Testament. He would be a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He was angry with the religious leaders when he healed on the Sabbath, it says. Jesus wept at Lazarus' death. You brood of vipers, he said, angry with the Pharisees when he delivered a demoniac. His grief over Jerusalem, it says he wept over Jerusalem. Rage, my zeal for your house, O God, will consume me, he said, with the temple money changers. And he turned over those tables because of what they were doing in God's temple to God's people. Frustration to the apostles. How long will I have to stand up, stand with you? Because they failed to deliver a boy from a demon. Agony. My soul is so very sorrowful, even to a point of death, he said at Gethsemane. And then he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Boy, we emphasize that a great deal. And if you want to know anything about 
what Jesus suffered, his agony, watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Really emphasizes everything Jesus felt. And when we, on Holy Week, take an evening out to just focus on all of the things that Jesus experienced in his last days, it makes us all enter into his experience of agony and loss and aloneness. So these are significant emotions. But secondly, this. I believe that Jesus was totally emotionally healthy. And psychologists even say someone who is emotionally healthy has some of these characteristics. They are self-aware. They know who they are. Listen, you know that movie or that play, Jesus Christ Superstar? It tried to make him seem like his identity was in question. Like he really didn't know who he was. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. As far as we know from the scriptures, since Jesus was 12 years old, he knew who he was. See, there was no question of his identity. That was not part of it. A health, emotionally healthy person is not motivated by the opinion of others. And yet Jesus was called a glutton, a sluggard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He didn't care what they said. He was focused, regardless of what people thought about him. Emotionally healthy people are able to forgive. And boy, if we don't know yet how forgiving Jesus is to all of us. Emotionally healthy people set boundaries for themselves. How many times when Jesus is right on the brink of a great ministry outbreak, he just disappears from the scene. And his apostle goes, where's Jesus? Where's he going? Where's he going? Come on, think, things are getting hot. And he just sets a boundary. and says, nope, that's enough for me. And he draws a boundary line. Very emotionally healthy. And this one here. Emotionally, people may get angry, but never for themselves, only for others. Okay, think about that. They get angry, but it's only ever for other people. I would call that righteous anger, okay, is what I would call it. But that's the kind of anger and the only kind of anger that comes out of Jesus because he was emotionally healthy. Was he angry hanging on the cross because of what they had done to him? Not a word of anger coming out of Jesus. Rather saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. See? Very emotionally healthy. And he models that for all of us. So, here's my next question I'd like to ask us. How do we learn from Jesus the habits that made him emotionally healthy? Jesus, what did you do to become and remain emotionally healthy? Well, let's look at some of those. So I'm going to try to extract from the scriptures, some practices that Jesus had, some habits. The first one is this, solitude. He practiced the habit of solitude. He spent time alone with God. How many times in the scriptures do we read about him pulling away from the activity when he needed to recharge? And often, of course, he went alone for a time of prayer. But the key is this, he pulled away from being with other people. John says this, he departed again into the mountain by himself alone. Interesting. Here's one too. 
the practice of worship. Jesus worshiped with community, with God's people. He went to synagogue. How many times in the scriptures does it mention? Jesus went to synagogue. Synagogue is where the scriptures were read publicly. In synagogue, it's where hymns were sung. It was in synagogue where prayers were prayed. Public prayers were prayed. These are the things that Jesus experienced that helped form his emotional health. And I do believe this. I believe corporate worship is essential to emotional health. And a number of years ago, Pastor Jack and I heard the advice from another pastor who says, if you have people that you are counseling, that people you're trying to give instructions to, I would insist that they be part of the body of Christ in worship for their own emotional health. What a concept. In other words, you want us to help you? You want counseling from us? Then you better be here on Sundays, worshiping with the people of God, because that's where your emotional health comes from, from that experience. Okay, next one. Rest. He rested. Oh, I love this. Jesus took a nap in a boat on a stormy sea. I I love that, that that he knew when he needed to rest. He knew when he had to pull away from his activities. He knew when he had to limit his activity. And then regarding this, Sabbathing or Sabbath rest. He understood what was truly Sabbathing. If I can give that verb, is there such a word? He knew how to Sabbath. And yet, though criticized by the Pharisees for breaking the Sabbath, he then declares this. He said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Though those words are filled with all kinds of meaning, but he knew what real Sabbath was, and he did it. And the last one here is, I'd like to say, we can pull out here, he celebrated, and he knew how to celebrate with people. Listen, we just heard that in the word shared today. He made a wedding feast that was about to be a big flop. He made it a whopping success by turning the water into wine. He got excited to celebrate the stories when the 70 came back from their training mission. He was celebrating with them. Good for you guys that you heard these things. And of course this, we know Jesus was a guest at several dinner parties, wasn't he? He was a party kind of guy, all right? He knew how to celebrate. Well, let me delve deeper into the meanings then behind this invitation from Jesus to take my yoke upon you. Could we do the next picture, please? Um, Nope, one more. Oh, where's my photo? There it is. Okay, what is that? That's a yoke. Now, how many of you guys didn't know what a yoke looked like? Be honest, I didn't know what a yoke looked like. Okay. I always read this in the Bible, but really never quite knew what a, a yoke was, that's a yoke. That's a yoke for oxen. Oxen's the plural for ox. means for two ox. And this is how oxes, oxen, are yoked together when they work in the fields. A senior ox is yoked to the younger ox. The younger ox learns by working with the senior ox directing him. The senior ox does it gently, he does it humbly, constantly side by side. They work together. 
So the senior ox also doesn't lower it over the younger ox and by saying to him, see, wait till you get to me my age. There's no conversation like that between them. They work together. The senior ox doesn't have to crack the whip. He doesn't have to goad the younger ox. He is gentle as he does it. He is humble as he does it. They purposely pull together the load in a coordinated manner. And then the younger ox learns to pace himself by learning it from the senior ox. These are the things that happen when we are yoked. So being yoked to Jesus, when we take on his yoke, by the way, it's an invitation. Take on his yoke. He's wearing the other side of the yoke. You know that. We're not bearing the whole thing ourselves. No, 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 no. He is asking us to share with him. He's going to carry the heavy load there, and we are sharing in that when we take on his yoke. See, we don't know this because we're all city folk, okay? We've never seen oxen pulling out, the, um, pulling a, anything behind them and see how they do their work. So we spend time with Jesus. We let him speak to us. He speaks to us through the word. He speaks to us throughout the day. He speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is called the paraclete, Paraclete, meaning parakletos, meaning alongside call her. He calls to us, alongside of us. This is a perfect example of how the Holy Spirit comes along with us as we work. And then we let him direct us. He keeps our furrows straight and gives us instructions on that. Jesus becomes our yoke fellow. You ever heard that word before, right? I've never, suddenly I'm looking at this and saying, ah, now I know what yoke fellow means. I never knew about this until I'd done this study. That's what it means. And so it's a good word meaning a close companion. Okay. There's several spiritual practices that will yoke us to Jesus. There's other ones too. Some of you know them already. There's Bible intake, uh, just studying, studying all kinds of books or theology. There's prayer. There's fasting. There's meditations submission, simplicity, all of these things are habits which help yoke us to Jesus. And we can learn. We discover then the Christian life can actually be easy and light. That's what Jesus said. That's his promise. Easy and light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So let me give examples of a couple things I've done in this area of watching Jesus' disciplines and trying them myself. I do practice solitude. I'm with people a lot of the time. But one of the places where I practice solitude, where nobody can be with me and bother me, is when I run. Because when I run, I run alone. I don't run with a running team, except when I'm over there at William Penn Elementary. But otherwise, I am alone. It's me and Jesus. And I have to admit, when I'm not running, I miss that time I spend with Jesus. I really have come to make that a wonderful habit in my life. So he and I talk. He talks to me, I talk to him while I'm out on the trails. So I'm gonna give you guys some applications, some challenges for us on this whole question, which is this one. Will we be emotionally shaped by our culture, our family, our experiences, or will we be emotionally healthy by being yoked to Jesus? That's a challenge question for you. 
We are still promoting, and we'll have another series on what we call emotionally healthy discipleship. We have classes beginning on September, the week of September 27. Our goal is that every member of this church will take that class because we'd like to see every one of you become emotionally healthy disciples of Jesus Christ. You're going to learn some important things in that. You'll learn about the habits of solitude and silence. You'll learn to give yourself permission to feel. You'll learn about the importance of emotions. You'll learn how to deal with the baggage you bring in from the family of origin. You'll learn how to relate to one another in an emotionally healthy way. I cannot think of a more important way of learning how to deal with people in church is learning how to deal with one another in an emotionally healthy way. Simple example of this is I learned how to emotionally differentiate myself from my family. My family never learned certain skills, like how to resolve conflict. Our family never resolved conflict. And I've learned now, I don't have to do things like my family did it. I can actually learn how to be emotionally healthy. And then I have this challenge for all of us today. These habits don't belong just to adults. These things can be practiced by everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. That means any age. Recall the opening scripture. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but you revealed them to little children. I believe that God intends for these things to be known and seen and done in front of our kids, in front of our kids, which brings me to my uh, challenge point here, my next one. Nope, that's not it. Back up one. Yep. These habits that produce emotional health must be modeled to this next generation we're seeking to disciple. I mean that seriously. We ought to think this isn't just adult stuff. This could be kids too, learning to follow Jesus in this way. It'll be the kids' version of it all, for sure, but they need to learn to relate to Jesus because they're disciples too. See, they're gonna learn to follow Christ. And that's my challenge to all of us as we seek then to influence and to build the next generation coming about us. And my last challenge is this one here. Our mission at NC4 is to know Jesus and to make him known. And I believe this, the power to fulfill that mission only comes by being yoked with Jesus. We're not gonna do this on our own. We're not gonna do it just through good works. Although I believe the good works display God's love to a hurting world, I do. But I don't think we're gonna accomplish that mission unless we ourselves take on the yoke of Jesus. That's my last challenge there. So, <clears throat> in closing, if I could have just one musician up here to uh, Johnny, a strum a guitar or something like that. Um, if we observe the feelings that Jesus had, all of his emotions regarding his life, his mission, his commitment, especially his commitment to his Father's will, it will help each one of us remain focused on our mission. I know how focused Jesus was on his mission. And I want to follow and be like Jesus and have a focus too. 
I want to be free of all distractions. I hope all of you will as well. And listen, there are dark forces working against us. Do you understand that? Do you understand what it was Jesus when Jesus encountered a challenge to his focus on his mission? Peter said, no, Lord, you can't. You can't die. You can't let the Pharisees do that to you. No, I won't let this. How did Jesus react when he was challenged on his focus on his mission? Oh, he was violent. Get thee behind me, Satan. Do you understand that? We have a challenge from the enemy of our souls to be distracted from our mission. And if we can likewise, from the example of Jesus, say, no, I'm going to be focused on this mission that God has given to me, that God has given to our church. So here today, Jesus makes these words of invitation to all of us, but maybe particularly somebody today is hearing this message, maybe for the first time, of hearing Jesus say, come, and hearing Jesus say, take, learn, find rest. And perhaps you're under a tremendous burden, a very heavy load. And you hear this wonderful words to come, take, learn, and to find. And if you're ready to find rest for your soul today, then pray these words after me, which I'm about to pray right now. Repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. I cannot bear my heavy load anymore. Please forgive me. I now turn away from anything that is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I can be forgiven and set free. I willingly take your yoke upon me. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Come into my life by your spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If you guys would keep your heads bowed and close your eyes right now. I just want to check out everyone who's here today and ask this question. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, you've never asked Jesus to come, take, and asked him if you could learn and find rest. Would you put your hand up if this is the first time you've ever prayed that prayer? Just put it up because our ushers have something for you. Thank you. If you prayed that for the first time, put a hand up. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyone else? Great. If you're online with us today, I'd like to just say to this, you'll have some instructions at the end of the video how you can respond based on how you prayed that prayer. Would all of you please stand? Lord, we want to respond to your invitation, all of your invitations. And Lord, some of us have been bearing up a heavy load that's not ours. And I confess, Lord, that when it feels heavy, 
Lord, when I feel burdened, then, Lord, I'm taking it on myself. Help me, Lord, to learn to take it from you. Help me, Lord, to learn to take the yoke that's easy and light. Teach us, Lord, how to live yoked to you. And, Lord, we believe that in your promises to us, that, Lord, we'll learn that the yoke is easy and the burden is actually light. Pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me just pray this blessing over you as I dismiss you guys. The kids have reached their limits, I understand. But they will learn of Jesus too. So let me just pray this. Be yoked to Jesus and be blessed. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.